so as a high school student, I was uh, I was a bad student, meaning I mean I wasn't a bad student and I wasn't smart, but I didn't try very hard, um, and I never read the things like through Brit Lit or American Lit. I never really read everything that was assigned, and now at the age that I now am, I wish I would have because all that stuff like um, old literature and old poems and things, I, I really enjoy reading that now. And one of the things I read the last couple years is um, Robinson Crusoe. And in the story of Robinson Crusoe, uh, the protagonist, Crusoe, is marooned on this island for 26 years. He's shipwrecked, everyone in his crew is dead except for him. Um, and on this island that he's marooned on, um, this group of cannibals, this group of indigenous native cannibals show up and with, with uh, captives, with prisoners, and um, they're gonna eat them. They're gonna eat the people um, that they have as prisoners. And um, one of these prisoners, his name was Friday. Um, later, Crusoe would name him Friday because that's the day they met on and he didn't speak English. Um, so he just named him Friday. And um, eventually he escapes with the help of Crusoe. And because of this, um, because he helps him escape, he swears this life debt to him. He swears, basically says, I'm gonna serve you, honor you, spend my life doing whatever you desire me to do because you saved my life. Um, see, Guy Friday, he was in the direst of circumstances. He was, he was a dude about to be marinated like a roasted chicken and lathered in barbecue sauce and eaten for dinner, for this ritual. And um, his circumstances were as dire as they possibly could be. And because of those circumstances, his focus, his circumstances and his focus and his reality was so narrow it was so, it was myopic and it was, it was as limited as it could possibly be because his whole life boiled down, boiled, pardon the pun, boiled down to <laughs> this, this moment as a captive. Everything in his life was now, everything had to do with just these, these last moments of his life. And as he swears this life debt to um, Caruso, um, he dedicates his life to this guy that saved him. His narrow circumstances became a freed life, a new life to live as he chose. And moreover, as soon as he's, as he's saved, it's not just that he gets a new life, it's not just that he restores a life debt to Crusoe, he then spends the rest of his time on that island trying to save the other prisoners. And so this guy who was, excuse me, this guy was released from his circumstances, Friday was released from his circumstances, these narrow, myopic circumstances in his bondage, he's released to a new life. A new life that he chose to spend in service to the guy that saved him and to help others in the same circumstances that he was in. I mean, the transition's obvious to the gospel, right? Um, but what was certain death for this guy Friday became a life in service to Robinson Crusoe and the others who were in dire circumstances. Um, magnify that by eternity, and those are our circumstances. Our sin and rebellion against the Creator God secured our death, or not, not, a, not just our life death, not just death here on earth, but an eternal death because we rebelled against the Creator God. And our active and passive disregard for Jesus, disregard for what the Bible says, disregard for the Creator, uh, were our eternal death sentence. Uh, where man saved Friday from certain and immediate death, Jesus saves us from eternal death. Where Friday's life was at risk, our eternity was at risk. You see, the most 
far-reaching truth for us on this earth is the existence of Jesus and the hope that he offers. The magnitude of that truth and the truth must change our identity. It must change what we care about. It must change our focus. Where we were once myopically focused on our life, our own circumstances, our own goings-on, our own school, work, whatever, we have an eternal focus. There's a shift from our focus on ourselves and on those around us that matter to us and we care about. The gospel changes that to an eternal focus, to a higher, more macro focus. Um, the theme of our study through First Peter this year has been this next life, what it means to live as a Christian, what it means to live as a Christian after being saved by God, and excuse me, how we interact. What we've been looking at in the book of First Peter, what this whole book is really about, is how our salvation and how the gospel changes how we interact with each other as other Christians, and it changes how we interact with those around us. Tyler talked last week about governments and authorities and submission and what that looks like. Um, there's, we're going to go on to talk about wives and husbands. Um, we're, we're talking about how we interact post-salvation with others that are Christians and others that aren't Christians. And um, all of that, all of how we interact with people is governed by our changed reality. Who we are has, who we are has changed because our reality has changed. Where we, once, where we were once broken, weak, lonely, and at the mercy of our own sin and the brokenness of the world around us, Jesus changed our circumstances and freed us and opened our eyes to an eternal reality. Um, eternal reality to serve God and glorify him. So because our circumstances have changed, um, we have a new focus. As our, as our macro circumstance change, changes, so does our focus. Where we were once focused on this, we're focused on the macro. So because, uh, so our thesis tonight, I guess, is we have a new focus because we have a new circumstance. The highest truth for you and I is that we are redeemed by God, and as such, our highest focus should be to live as his redeemed people. Our greatest circumstances change, so our greatest focus should also change. Um, there is a disconnect between the story of Robinson Crusoe Friday and our story, right? We live in very comfortable circumstances in, the, in this country and throughout the history of our country. Persecution has been basically non-existent. Uh, overt persecution, anyway, basically non-existent. Um, by the grace of God, we, don't, we aren't arrested for talking about God here. We, we can meet on campus and study the Bible and worship Jesus. Like, that's the grace of God, but that's not the truth for so many around the world. And that wasn't the truth for the people that Peter was writing to. Um, so look at 1 Peter 2, 18 through 20 with me. It says, Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing, when mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if you do good and suffer for it, you endure. This is a gracious thing in the sight of God. Peter, throughout this book, is, talks about suffering because so much of the early church's interaction with the world was that of suffering for the gospel, suffering for the sake of what they believed and what they preached. Um, and so throughout this book, in 1 Peter 1, 6-7 through 7, that we already looked at, he says, In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold, that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor in the revelation of Jesus. Also in 
chapter 3, verse 13 to 14. Now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you'll be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. So the, the entire, it talks about in chapter 4 a couple times too, and in chapter 5. Their circumstances were suffering. Like their life was suffering. They were suffering because of what they believed. They were suffering in oppressive regimes. They were being murdered for their faith. 11 of the 12 disciples were killed for their faith. And the one that wasn't was boiled alive and exiled to an island. Like their context was abject suffering. And throughout this letter, Peter is pressing into them an encouragement. An encouragement to endure, to hold fast to the gospel and keep an eye on eternity. Because what does he say in verse 19? For this is a gracious thing when mindful of God one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. To keep an eye on eternity, to keep an eye on what is the most macro of importance, the gospel, the reality that changes everything, keeping an eye on that is how he's encouraging them to press on through suffering and pain. Um, look again at Verse 19 and 20 with me. Uh, For this is a gracious thing. When mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. Then later in verse 20 it says, But if when you do good and suffer for it, if you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. Now how can suffering be a good thing? How can suffering be a grace of God? How can trials, fiery trials as Peter calls them, how can that be gracious and kind of God. You see, because there's a radical shift in our reality, it changes our focus, it also changes our perspective. It changes how we see things. Part of the ultimate change of our circumstance is that our ultimate perspective changes with it. Becoming aware of the reality of eternity, of the reality of the gospel, and seeing what is wrought from our sin and rejection of God. Excuse me. And seeing what is wrought from sin and rejection of God and salvation, and salvation from that deserved eternal death, that liberates us to see the beautiful picture that is eternity and the beautiful picture of Jesus. See, before our circumstances, we were trapped, we were limited in our vision and focus, just like Friday's whole life came down to these several moments. He was limited in what he could see and what he could do. Like that, we are limited in our, by, by just focusing on the immediate, what's right in front of us, we are limited by what we can see. You see, myopically focusing on the now is near impossible to see suffering and pain as anything other than a bad thing. So we ask, why God? Why me? In the moment, unjust suffering, unjust suffering, it provokes anger and frustration because all we can see is what's right in front of us often. Somebody asked, why me? Why do I deserve this? I've been a, a good person. I've been to church. I this, that, and the other. Um, look with me at 2 Corinthians 4, 16 through 18. See what Paul has to say about suffering. So we do not lose heart, though our outer self is wasting away. Our inner self is being renewed day by day. For in light of this momentary affliction... For this light momentary affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison, as we look not as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are unseen are transient, but the things that are unseen 
are eternal. Um, so Peter says it's a gracious thing, it's a good thing if we suffer for our faith, it's a good thing if we suffer for doing good. Paul says that these are momentary afflictions, and these momentary afflictions are preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond our comprehension. See, we're not limited by now if we focus on the eternity. We're not limited in asking, why me? Why God? Why is this happening to me? Why is, instead of a me focus, it's a God focus. Instead of this horizontal, right now focus, we focus on the eternal God, the eternal implications of our suffering. And Romans 5 says that suffering produces hope. Suffering produces endurance, which produces character, which produces hope. Hope in the God of eternity. Hope in the God of grace and mercy. When we are mindful of God amidst the brokenness of this world and the afflictions and pains it will impose upon us, our hope is not in the fickle, tiny, inconsistent human concepts of justice because we're suffering unjustly, as Peter's told us. Often we suffer unjustly as humans and as Christians. Specifically in this context, they were suffering incredibly unjustly under oppression. Um, our hope isn't in any concept of human justice or human human justice. It is a hope in a divine mercy of the creator of justice. The only truly perfect and objective judge. Um, why do you think we have such a fascination with superheroes right now? Marvel poops out a movie every three months. And on Netflix, how many of you guys have watched like Daredevil and Jessica Jones? Uh -huh. They're dang good, right? They're dang good, but also, one of the reasons they're popular is this, there's this theme that runs across all three of them, and a lot of other superhero films, is the fact that justice, human justice is imperfect. Human justice is imperfect and incomplete. These shows build on the premise that our justice system can't remedy the issues that are facing their city, and specifically those three shows. In New York City, the, the justice system is imperfect and cannot remedy the situations that each of them are facing in their city, so they feel they must, in some other way, subvert what's happening. Um, and we're fascinated not only by these stories, but what these stories represent, the shifting ambiguities of human concepts of what are right and wrong, um, the imperfection of human justice, all of these, these, these themes of imperfect human ideas of justice and right and wrong, and even one of the characters in these shows, Matt Murdock, is a lawyer himself participating in the very justice system that he feels he must subvert in order to attain what he sees as justice. See, human justice is fickle. What we see as human justice is fickle because at war are so many different ideas of what justice should be because we're fallen creatures. And not only are we fallen, we're finite. We're fallen and finite creatures that can only see a certain amount of reality, we're also fallen in that we're infected by sin as, hu as humans. Everyone is approaching justice from a different fallen and a different finite perspective. We're not God, that's obvious. Uh, and we'll always be limited by that fallenness and by that finiteness. Uh, which is why we, can, we need a hope in a justice that is bigger than human justice. And that's exactly what Jesus did in our passage tonight. Look at 1 Peter 2.23. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. 
Is he saving grace? It releases us from demanding human justice because the ultimate giver of justice is on the throne. Because the ultimate giver of justice died in the ultimate injustice. We look at our suffering and pain and ask why. Jesus looked at his suffering and pain and entrusted himself to the just judge. Jesus' suffering was infinitely, on top of that, Jesus' suffering was infinitely more profound than anything we can imagine. Us comparing our, our injustices, our afflictions, our pains, our sufferings to Jesus's, it's not even apples to oranges, it's ants to gods. And in these stories that we were talking about, these, these, these Marvel stories, most of them became heroes become of, because of some kind of injustice that was inflicted upon them. But yet the worst tragedy wasn't experienced by Bruce Wayne, it was experienced by Jesus on the cross. Read 1 Peter 2, 21-23 with me. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth, when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to the one who judges justly. See, there's no greater injustice than what happened at the cross. We look around the world, we look throughout history, and we see injustices all over the place. We see countries oppressing people, not, not just Christians, people in general. People are murdered, there's genocide. There's empires throughout history who have, um, through, the way that they amassed land and power was through the oppression of the people that they took that land from. In our country, we've seen in, the, in our recent past, so much injustice in our financial systems. Guys, under the guise of financial advisor, taking money from teachers and police officers and railroad workers with pensions, and guys like Bernie Madoff. Or scandals like, and this is a little old, but WorldCom and Enron. Like, dense injustices that are injustice. Um, and these events are despicable, horrendous amalgamations of the worst parts of the human soul. But even so, nothing that has ever happened, nothing that ever will happen, will be as unjust, unjust as what happened to Christ on the cross. See, Jesus was the incarnate God, perfect in every way. He loved people, he saved sinners, broke bread with prostitutes, he even hung out with the self-righteous Pharisees. He healed the sick. He had mercy on the marginalized. He was generous. He was in every way as he existed. The incarnate Jesus was in every way compassionate, loving, and caring. He was in every way good, as Peter says in our verse 19. Good. He was good in every way. But more than the kindness, than his kindness to humanity while he was on earth, He was perfectly obedient to God throughout the entirety of his life. Perfectly submissive to God's design. He never once rebelled, never once said, I have a better way, I have, some, I have another way we can figure this out. Never once did Jesus subvert the plans or the designs of God. Look in Ephesians 3, 10 and 11 and 1 Peter 1, 20. Uh, 1 Peter 3, 10 and 11 say, so that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose 
that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord. And then in verse 120, he was foreknown before the foundations of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you. See, before the foundations of the world were even laid, the plan for redemption through Jesus was in motion. God's eternal plan was to reconcile humanity to Christ through the cross. Before anything existed, Jesus submitted to the reality of the pain and the suffering and the injustice of the cross. The eternity past. The physical pain of the cross was immense. Being beaten with rods and clubs, being whipped and flogged, the agony of being nailed to a cross, the ridicule of being spit on and mocked throughout the entirety of the suffering, the torment of having to watch his family look on as this injustice occurred. This is physical and emotional pain and suffering beyond anything we could possibly imagine as humans, for most of us. Physical and emotional pain that we just, we don't experience as Americans. And even going on above all of this was a cosmic battle between sin and justice. Between, God de between God's demand for justice and the sin that demanded that justice. The physical and emotional toll of what he was already experiencing would be too much for any of us, and yet the weight of a cosmic war being waged was also on his shoulders. Look at 1 Peter 2, 24. He himself bore our sins in his body, on that tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. Isaiah 53, four through six, also says, bear with me. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his stripes we are healed. And yet we, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord was, has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Not only was it emotional pain and suffering, the weight of humanity's sin was on him. The wrath of God was on him. The cherry on top of this divine Sunday of wrath was the sin for everyone who would believe in him. That's a weight that we can't even imagine. And all this weight, all this physical agony, this emotional torment, the spiritual war, despite all that, Peter tells us in 1 Peter 2.22-23, he committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He was the victim of the greatest injustice in the history of humanity, and yet he did not revile. He did not threaten. He didn't sin. He didn't scream and yell at them. In fact, he asked God to forgive them. Amidst the greatest injustice ever perpetrated, Jesus asked them to forgive them. That's incredible to me. And the last part of this verse says, entrusting himself to him who judges justly. The way that Jesus could endure that pain and that suffering is he entrusts himself to the eternal God. 
entrust themselves to his eternal reality. Now why? Why did Jesus endure this suffering, endure this pain, endure such agony and torment? Well, let's finish our passage for the night, 24 through 25. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, though he might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. For you are straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. So why did Jesus endure such atrocities? Why would he submit himself to this injustice so that we might be healed? So that we might die to sin and live to righteousness and return to the overseer and the shepherd of our souls. Jesus endured that suffering and pain for us. Jesus endured the greatest injustice so that we might experience the perfection of true justice. That's the big idea tonight. Jesus endured the greatest injustice in the history of humanity so that we might experience the perfect, the perfection of true justice in him. You see, well, I mean, we've all been affected by injustices, whether it's, I mean, like I said, it's not, it's not the same as the people that Peter's writing this letter to in Asia Minor. It's not even close. But we all still are affected by the sin of others. We're still, all still affected by the things happening in our country, the things happening in our city, the things happening in our schools and works that are unjust. Sometimes our response to that is often to run away from God. To, like I said, ask God why. The truth is that Jesus bared the whole of injustice so that in him we might be guaranteed a home where injustice no longer exists. With an eternal mindset on a future, a future reality where injustice no longer even exists. In the moment, Mary couldn't see anything just about what was happening to her son. The disciples themselves locked themselves in a room after Jesus died because their leader was just publicly executed for what he was saying, for claiming to be God. Even Peter, the writer of this letter, narrow was his focus when he argued with the other disciples who was the greatest. Narrow was his focus when he denied Jesus three times because he'd just been executed. Narrow was his focus when he tried to physically fight to keep Jesus from being arrested. Narrow, it was myopic. It wasn't focused on eternity. But now who writes this letter? The same guy that denied Jesus, the same guy that fought with the sword, the same guy that argued with these other disciples, who was the greatest of them. And now he writes this letter. He writes this letter to a church of suffering Christians that are being killed and executed for the faith urging them to see the sufferings of Jesus and emulate them. As he says in verse 21, for you have been called so that you might follow in his footsteps. You see, our most macro circumstances has changed, so our most macro of focuses and perspectives must change with it as Christians. Where we were once fallen sinners and victims of injustice, like Friday in the story of Robinson Crusoe, 
we are now liberated to experience the true justice that Jesus offers. Not the fickle human justice, but the justification of being healed of our sin and credited with his righteousness, with his perfection. Free to pursue the glories, as he said, freed you to die to sin and live to him. We're free to pursue that. And it's not just despite our circumstances that we're able to pursue righteousness and holiness. It's not just despite our circumstances that we're able to proclaim Jesus. It's because of them we can point to Jesus and point at the ultimate injustice. See, our endurance through suffering, pain, and injustice is a chance to point at Jesus to the perfect endurance of the ultimate injustice. Our submission to Jesus, despite our temporal circumstances, is a chance to point to the change of our ultimate circumstances. Our pursuit of righteousness and holiness is a chance to point to the perfection of holiness in Jesus. It's this next life that we're talking about in 1 Peter. It's a life lived with a view of eternity. It's a life lived with a view on our eternal circumstances. It's a life lived pointing to the cross, proclaiming the mercy and grace of the gospel, of following in his footsteps, as our passage says. And as Friday did, pursuing those that are still captive. See, our eternity, our eternal focus frees us not only to live for Jesus, but to live for Jesus so that others that are still might enjoy that freedom as well. Uh, I'm going to just close by reading our passage again. Um, just, I want to leave you with an encouragement to contextualize your pain and suffering. Um, though we don't experience executions and beatings and imprisonments for being a Christian, I mean, we're still sometimes mocked and ridiculed and looked down on and snickered at or just not, not giving the time of day often. Um, I want to encourage you to, to contextualize that in light of the cross and use that to point to the ultimate injustice in the cross. Use that to point to the perfect endurance of Jesus. Use that to point to the, use that to, point to the point of our new reality. Um, I just want to read our passage one more time. Who's we reading it? Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing. When mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure? This is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you as an example, so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed, for you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Let's pray. God in heaven, I thank you for gospel. Thank you for salvation and 
and life through Jesus. I thank you for it. Jesus, I thank you for the endurance and the, just the, the, the will to press through the, this ultimate pain and suffering that we can't even comprehend, much less experience. God, I pray that you would help us to contextualize our pains, to, context, to contextualize our sufferings in light of your suffering, God. 